0: Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Melick, and I'm working solo in the booth tonight. Tonight we're talking about hope in the face of cancer. According to the latest statistics from the American Cancer Society, the risk of developing cancer in women is over 37%, and in men, it's over 42%. Cancer has been called one of the most significant challenges in human history and will affect every one of us at one time or another. The good news is that we're on a path towards more rational treatments, including a better understanding of the importance of a more holistic approach that acknowledges the role of spirituality, hope, and forgiveness in healing. Today, we're joined by Reverend Dr. Michael Barry, the former director of pastoral care at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Philadelphia, and the author of four books, including A Reason for Hope and The Forgiveness Project and all of which attempt to address the spiritual needs of cancer patients at a time when their faith is both challenged and critically important. Michael joins us to talk about his experiences, and what's truly important at such a difficult time is this. Michael, welcome to Grace in 30.
1: Thanks, Ed, appreciate you having me on.
0: So let's dive right in. Um, In your book, A Reason for Hope, you say that hope is a necessary ingredient in the healing process. Uh, Please describe what you meant by that.
1: And let me answer that question this way. What do you do for someone who has been recently told by their physician that you have cancer, go home and get your affairs in order. There's nothing more that can be done. And, of course, the short answer to that is everything that you can. And to my life as a cancer specialist, a cancer chaplain for 10 years, was attempting to try and figure out what in the world I could possibly do as a Christian pastor to help people who are really struggling to hang on to life. And a book that I read that transformed my ministry to cancer patients was written by Dr. Jerome Grootman from Harvard Medical School, entitled The Biology of Hope. Listen to what he said. He said, true hope has proven to be more important than any medication he's prescribed or surgery he's performed. So you can imagine trying to help people as a pastor, uh, and you recognize how important hope is. Uh, It became a focal point, Ed, of, of my ministry, was learning to diagnose people's hopelessness and attempt to try and replace that with true hope.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that you say that. I have to right up front uh, share that you know that my ex-wife, who I'm very close to, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, back in July. And uh, it, around November time, it had spread to her omentum. And we read your book. I, I can't remember how I came across it, but uh, I bought two copies. I gave one copy to her, and I have one copy, and we both read it. And and I've told you already, and I'll share with the listeners, that that was a real turning point in her journey, because when the cancer spreads from the pancreas to an area like the omentum, which contains the organs, it's a very grim outlook, and her whole outlook just changed to, to very hopeful, and we had some people come in who had a sort of a healing ministry and pray for her, and long story short, the cancer has basically pretty much disappeared from her omentum, and she's just in incredible shape, we're about seven months after that spread. I, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. You pose some interesting questions in your book. Um, one question you ask people is, do they want to live? And if so, why? And, and so explain why these questions are important and how people typically react to them.
1: Well, what I'm trying to do in asking that question is to try to put a frame around their life experience. Um, as a Christian, as a born-again believer, um, you know, the difference between a person of faith and someone who is not is that you end up putting your faith in God as a believer, and as a non-believer, you put your faith in science. And so entering into a dialogue with a cancer patient who might be struggling and trying to provide a helpful framework for trying to enter into the life of someone who's struggling is to help look at their life. Um, seeing what it is they might have that they have to look forward to. What is their reason for living? Uh, you know, Sigmund Freud said that uh, everyone has a death wish. So I don't know how true that is, but I will say that not everybody wants to live. Not everybody has a strong reason to live. And so, again, one of the challenges that I had in ministry was to attempt to try and enter into their life to see where is it that they're struggling what is it that's creating a barrier to the hope uh, and or life that they might have hoped to have lived? So, again, it's just a way of entering into a conversation with them and trying to help them attempt to be reminded that, you know, as Christians, whenever we accepted Christ, we died then and there. Uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The Bible says, if I live, I live unto the Lord. Whether I die, I die unto the Lord. So whether I live or whether I die, I belong to Him. So as a Christian, I live for Christ. That is my purpose and reason for living. And it doesn't matter whether it's six more months or 60 more years. That's the purpose of my life. And so helping people frame their life within the context of their faith, I found to be very helpful.
0: So, you served as the pastor or the director of pastoral care at the Cancer Treatment Centers of American Philly for 10 years, which means you've worked with and served many cancer patients. And when we last spoke on the phone, you sort of talked about three groupings of patients uh, people who experienced what you called miraculous healings, those who clung to uh, sort of a false faith, and those who were at their end of life. And they really made that the best time of their life, they really made it a very significant period. Talk about each one of these. Give us examples of these three different types of patients.
1: Well, um, I think I mentioned to you that one of the most heartbreaking experiences I've ever had was someone that was a pastor. Uh, he had cancer. It was late-stage cancer. And um, long story short, uh, when he reached the, the final end of the curve of his life, um, the decision was made not to let any of our pastoral care staff into his uh, intensive care room, who didn't think that he was going to walk out. In other words, his belief was that if you had enough faith, that you would survive your disease, as though somehow or another, if you don't uh, survive your your disease, you didn't have enough faith. And I just it was very heartbreaking to me because my wife and I had become very close friends with him and uh, he and his wife. And it was, so it was um, just a very sad experience. And what I believe is that the two most intimate moments, Ed, that people have with the life is when they give their life to Christ, when you're born again, when you enter into that new relationship with him. And then the second most intimate is when you hear the voice saying uh, that he's calling you home. So I, I think we all recognize that we're mortal people. We're not going to live forever and being open to the possibility that it may not be God's will for you to survive your disease. Uh, Keep in mind that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he did it for one reason, and one reason only. And it was so that through his being raised from the dead, all of the glory would go to Jesus. So if in the event God in his love and gracious kindness allows people to survive their disease, I don't think Ed, that at the end of the day, it's so that we can eke out another couple of months or years or decades. I think at the end of the day, if we're ever healed from cancer or any other life-threatening disease, it's for his glory. And so when I hear about your ex-wife and the experience that she had, it's, it's all the more reason to give God praise. And, uh, and I'm certain that uh, certain she does that as well.
0: Yeah, you mentioned, you said, I think I'm quoting you here, that faith, in a sense, made the end of your friend's life miserable. So you didn't see him in the last several days?
1: I didn't see him for about, yeah, the last three or four days. Uh, It was tragic, because not only would they not let uh, our pastoral care team in, he wouldn't let anyone in his room, Hmm. including his parents, go into his uh, room who didn't believe that, who didn't have enough faith that he would walk out. So um, he didn't... We didn't walk in and he didn't walk out, so that was just a very sad experience for us all. And I think it's mischaracterization of what it is that we have to expect from cancer treatment and how we define success in cancer treatment.
0: So let's talk about two of the more positive outcomes, the the people that you've seen who've had pretty remarkable healings and then those who simply have died with dignity.
1: things for me in working with cancer patients was that there are atheists in foxholes. I think most of us who have faith are surprised that when people find themselves experiencing cancer that they're not suddenly, you know, awakened spiritually and they have some sort of renewal as they begin to face their own mortality. And that just isn't true. I mean, quite often people who didn't have faith didn't have it when they before they had cancer and the fact that they got it didn't suddenly awaken them so uh the challenge of course is to not impose your belief system on other people uh but to be a, a resource of love and care and support you know during
0: the remainder of their
1: life and then of course there's always those people whose faith is so much more vibrant and um inspiring than even, I think, I would be able to muster in the face of, uh, of difficulty. Um, one woman realized that she wasn't going to survive her disease. And by the way, quite often patients realize that long before everyone else. Uh, they'll fight on for their caregivers and for their loved ones. But in the, at the end of the day, I think inside they, they have a sense that they're not going to survive. So she spent the last uh, six, eight months of her life uh, preparing for her passing, and uh, she was Amish, uh, or excuse me, Mennonite, and she had her cousin's make make handmaker coffin for her and inscribe a Bible verse on it that she picked out, and uh, she had never married, so she was buried in a wedding gown and took pictures, and it was just the most remarkable testament to somebody who truly believes in Easter and that life goes on and that we are indeed going to that place that god's preparing for us
0: so tell us some stories you've experienced yourself you talked about uh, your skepticism uh, about faith healers uh, but that you have you know since you had that skepticism seen people miraculously healed with your own eyes give us an account or so of, of of that sort of situation
1: you know and i come from a presbyterian background and Presbyterians aren't really big into miracles, Uh, in fact, and I'm speaking, of course, very generically, but, you know, most Presbyterians would run from someone who want to talk about faith and faith healing and that kind of thing, but, and so I entered into, you know, a cancer ministry with some skepticism, but at the same time, um, I know what the Bible tells us. If you're sick, call the elders, and and James reminds us that they'll pray for you and you'll be made well, and The least I could do, it seems to me, regardless of whatever my tradition might be, is to honor what scriptures quite plainly say. And so I had one patient one time, excuse me, one parishioner one time who was diagnosed with a a tumor on his spine that was creating numbness in his legs. And uh, he called me in the middle of the day and asked me to come pray for him. And I had a vial of oil in my desk, and I grabbed it and ran over there, and anointed him with oil and with a, the prayer as simple as Lord please heal him in accordance with your divine will that was it I put the lid back on the bottle I went back to my office and several hours later he was laying in his uh, recliner and he said his body became enveloped with warmth from head to toe back and forth back and forth for three or four minutes and and he knew that He was in the presence of god that god was doing something remarkable with his life and uh, after the warmth had gone he touched his legs the numbness was almost all gone uh uh, by the next morning it was completely gone two days later he went to have another mri because they were going to schedule surgery to remove the tumor it turned out all they found was a speck the size of a piece of pepper where that tumor had been i've seen with my own eyes what the power of God can do when it comes to healing. And uh, happily, th- that wasn't uh, an isolated incident. You know, many of the people who come to Cancer Treatment Centers of America come because they're late-stage cancer patients. One of the remarkable p- events that they have, at is uh, what they call Celebrate Life. And um, they their five-year survivors. And the house is packed <laughs> with people who had been told by their physicians Nothing more can be done. Go home and get your fares in order. They came to CTCA, and I don't want to oversell CTCA. There's other wonderful cancer hospitals as well. But you can't believe the amazing things that can happen uh, if you're given the opportunity to.
0: Yeah, I've got to say that, and I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but uh, when Diane had her first scan and the omentum, the, the cancer and the omentum had been shrinking and significantly shrinking, her oncologist was extremely happy and, and positive, yet he still said twice during the meeting, you have an incurable disease. And I, I remember just thinking, that no more. We're not going to talk like that anymore. We're going to talk positively and, and, and no more of this negativity. And we've really tried to make that, you know, sort of a cornerstone, a hallmark of the journey. Um, just returning briefly back to you talked about no atheists in foxholes. Talk a little bit more about how you how do you enter into the world of someone who's not a believer? How do you how do you identify areas of hopefulness in their lives and work with them and help them you know inspire them to better outcomes?
1: Well, not uniquely to unbelievers. Uh, again, the cancer ministry at at least from the way I uh, performed my duties. Was to diagnose hopelessness, um, and of course, um, God heals unbelievers the same way He heals believers. So uh, it's not simply because people have faith in Jesus that they're going to find healing. There's plenty of uh, times in which God effects healings in a number of people, but but quite often, Ed, one of the biggest barriers to hope that people had were statistics. Uh, You were referencing earlier about how, you know, uh, the physician had given Diane, you know, a very poor outcome or a poor prognosis. Let Let me just read to you, if I could, from the National Cancer Institute's website when it comes to statistics, because that is usually the biggest barrier to hope, especially for people who look at themselves as... Uh, in terms of an unbeliever as, as a machine and so forth, as opposed to being kind of an, uh, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says on the on the website. Because statistics are based on large groups of people, they cannot, and I'll underscore that, they cannot be used to predict exactly what will happen to you. Everyone is different. How people respond to treatment, very greatly. The statistics your doctor uses to make a prognosis may not be based on treatments being used today. They are educated guesses. So I think very often the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is that a believer puts their faith in God and an unbeliever puts their faith in science. And so if you believe statistics. If you believe what all the quote-unquote science says about disease and and treatment um, expectations, then the statistics can be crippling to you. And so one of the challenges that I had in attempting to remove false hope and replace it with something that was true was to help them understand how cancer statistics are created and quite often explaining to them how the National Cancer Institute and others uh, uh, de- devised their statistics quite often alleviated a lot of the hopelessness and despair.
0: Yeah, the, the statistics we were quoted were, were quite grim, um, and, uh, you know, we just shelved them. We don't even think about you know, these anymore.
1: You know, Ed, I think what happens is when doctors say there's nothing more that can be done, I think what they're really saying is there's nothing more they can do.
0: Mm. Or they're willing to do.
1: They're, you know, they're at the end of their abilities, and they're probably not going to tell you, you need to go get another opinion if they're a medical oncologist. So, um, yeah, quite often there's much that can be done, and, and not the least of which has to do with the spiritual resources that we've got.
0: Well, let's make sure we turn our, our focus to forgiveness, the, the role that forgiveness plays in healing. Um, is there a relationship between a spirit of unforgiveness and sickness, Uh, particularly with cancer. Tell us about what you've discovered with this.
1: You know, Dr. Stephen Staniford is one of the medical oncologists at CTCA, and he was quoted as saying that unforgiveness is a a disease. It will make you sick and keep you sick. And so I think physicians better understand these days what stress, uh, particularly chronic stress and anxiety, can do to your system. So when you are in a state of unforgiveness, you are essentially, uh, Ed, becoming overwhelmed with chronic stress. It's just a very upsetting, stressful experience to be filled with hatred and anger towards someone. And the biology is pretty straightforward. Whenever we experience stress, uh, it elicits a stress response from our bodies, which create adrenaline and cortisol. And I'm not going to get into a big explanation about adrenaline and its impact upon your heart and so forth but cortisol is a very specific uh, enzyme and what it does is it shuts down your immune system because it's saying why you know why spend all of your your energy your physical energy worrying about fighting a disease such as identifying and destroying cancer cells when you perceive that there's something that's even a greater threat at, at the moment so helping people identify issues of unforgiveness, which, by the way, were were not an unusual phenomenon in talking with cancer patients. Uh, Helping them to find ways to find forgiveness was very important. One of the things I learned, Ed, was that I couldn't find a university, a medical school, or seminary that teaches its pastors, psychotherapists, or MDs how to help people forgive people. It's not being taught. And so I had the privilege of being able to develop a uh, forgiveness education curriculum that our patients found to be very helpful, as well as others.
0: Is that changing over time? I mean, I, is it something that's only done at cancer treatment centers, or are, are you hearing about other, uh, other practices or hospitals or whatever doing this?
1: There is a very narrow uh, number of uh, scholars in what I would consider to be the forgiveness research uh, area. Uh, maybe a dozen or less, but they're located in universities and their patient populations are primarily are students. Whenever they're doing research that they end up publishing, it's usually the students that are in front of them. Well, I don't know about you, but there's a big difference between, you know, a healthy college kid, you know, dealing with being rejected by a, you know, loved one uh, and somebody battling cancer yep. and, and dealing with end-of-life issues and concerns and wanting to make peace with God and themselves and others. So the research that we did on forgiveness uh, had to do with specifically with cancer patients and their caregivers. So we're pretty proud of the several journal articles that we've published.
0: So tell us concrete steps people can take to identify and address these areas of unforgiveness in their lives.
1: Well, there's three different motivators. And by the way, the the number one barrier to forgiving is finding the motivation to forgive. Um, And what I've learned over time is that there's three basic motivators, biology, sociology, and theology. Biology, some people want to forgive because they know it's making them sick. They feel bad. They want to feel better. And so they're willing to, you know, try and forgive themselves or someone else who hurt them. Another is sociology because... What I've learned is that when you're filled with hatred, it has a sense of isolating yourselves from other people. You know, who wants to hang around somebody who's filled with hate all the time? And then, of course, the last is theology. Um, All religions value forgiveness, but the Christian faith, as I understand it, requires it. There's an expectation that we are forgiving people because of the grace of God extended to us through Christ. So, um, yeah, helping people find the motivation to forgive, and talking about it, helping them better understand how it's going to help their bodies and kinda of alleviate their, st- their stress um, and create the best environment physically for them to be uh, overcome their cancer.
0: So what about people who, who just, how do you help them see the need to forgive? Some people just can't simply see it. They think they've forgiven and, and, and it might be happening in a superficial way, or they just simply don't recognize it at all. How do you, how do you deal with folks like that?
1: Well, you know, I'm often asked, how do you know you're forgiven? And I, well, one of the ways I always respond is, well, have you ever fallen in love? And often people say, yes, i fall fallen in love. I said, well, do you ever have, did you ever have to have someone tell you that you had fallen? <laughs> oh, no, I knew I'd fall in love. I said, well, when you forgive, you fall out of hatred. And you're not going to have to ask anyone if that's taken place. <laughs> so when you help someone find forgiveness, it isn't just a mental exercise. Uh, Matthew 18 talks about forgiveness from the heart. When you actually forgive someone, you can feel it. You know that there has been a shift emotionally, not to mention how you view the, uh, the object of your, uh, of your hatred.
0: So what are some of the core nuggets of wisdom that you'd like to share? I mean, you've shared a number of things already, but are there certain things that, you know, whenever you talk to people about the work you've done, your experiences, the people you've served... That you, you want to make sure you share these these certain two three or so things with people. What what would they be?
1: Well, the first is is that when it comes to cancer, that you should get two opinions. And this isn't my idea. This is a well documented uh, uh, attitude toward cancer. If you if you can get at least two opinions, because not all diagnoses are the same. Uh, we've had people who have come in uh, with a, a diagnosis and only to find out that it was a uh, false diagnosis and uh, in other words all that is to say is that there's human error involved and when it comes to your life you owe owe it to yourself to get a couple of opinions and then the second would be to treat where you trust it's very important as I'm sure you found out with Diane it's very important to trust the people that you you're essentially giving your life over to so you know if you don't get along with your doctor for whatever reason Uh, my advice would be to get another one.
0: In terms of also defining success, how do people define success? Is that a critical thing as well?
1: Well, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee wrote a book entitled Emperor of All Maladies, which is about a foot thick. It's a tome on cancer going back 5,000 years. And very interesting uh, book, obviously quite detailed. But what he said at the end of his book that I think is noteworthy is that at some point, people need to realize or, or redefine when success when it comes to cancer uh, treatment. So often, I think we we think of success as being a cure, and that may not be the case at all. Success might be it might be extending your life from six weeks to six years, or from you know ten months to ten years. So but the but the reality is, is that you know at, at the end of the day, Ed, we're all going to die from something. and in all likelihood, there's going to be a breakdown of our bodies, and it's very likely that breakdown is going to be called cancer. So I think success needs to be viewed not as a not as a cure, as though somehow or another if you're not cured, you fail. I think quite often there are wonderful things that be, that can be done medically for us that can extend our lives, and we can have a very long and robust survivorship, even though we may not ultimately survive the disease.
0: So we've got about a minute, and I want to ask you, do you have a call to action? Is there something that you'd like to challenge our listeners to do or think? Uh, and it could be those battling cancer, those who uh, are, have relatives or dear ones, loved ones that are suffering, or, and even caregivers. What would you challenge uh, people to do?
1: Well, If I had to pick one person, that would be a Christian. And my advice would be to Christians is to become a student of forgiveness. It is a very complex disease. The process of finding forgiveness for someone who's hurt you is not an easy one. Uh, But if we become a student of forgiveness, I think what it does is it helps us learn how to deal with stuff that's happened in the past, which we all have a past. It helps us learn how to cope with what we're dealing with right now in our lives. But I think also, Ed, it also puts us in touch with the God who loves us. It puts us in touch with the God who forgave us. And I think helps us to anticipate what eternity is going to be like living with that God who sacrificed himself for us.
0: Michael, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Uh, and I thank you personally for Diane and I for what we've learned from uh, your book. Uh, If listeners want to find out more about Michael's work, you can check out his books, A Reason for Hope, A Season for Hope, The Art of Caregiving, and The Forgiveness Project. And we'll also be posting information on our Facebook and Twitter pages. A replay of the show can be found at thegracein30.com and wera.fm websites 24 hours after airing tonight. And the show will also re-air on WERALP this Sunday at 8.30 a.m. This is Ed signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Everybody, please have a great night and be sure to tune in to Grace.